Love a good fright? Stream your fears with Shudder. From the legendary monsters that fuel your nightmares to under-the-radar haunts and acclaimed exclusives like Creepshow and Slasher, Flesh and Blood, experience what Polygon calls a horror movie paradise and what RogerEbert.com says is one of the best streaming services in the world. Stacked with chilling content, all curated by the industry's top horror experts, Shudder's library of frightening films and eerie series covers the horror spectrum, meaning there's something for every type of horror, thriller, and supernatural fan. Available ad-free and on the platforms you're already on. Sign up today at Shudder.com. Shudder, so good, it's scary. There's a reason podcasts are popping up everywhere. Podcasts can make you money. And Spreaker is the easiest way to start a podcast. You could literally record your first episode today. Spreaker has all the tools you need to record, edit, publish, and yeah, monetize your podcast all in one place. And it's free. So tell your story and make money while doing it. Start your podcast for free now at Spreaker.com slash make money. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com slash make money from the iHeart Podcast Network. There's a reason podcasts are popping up everywhere. Podcasts can make you money. And Spreaker is the easiest way to start a podcast. You could literally record your first episode today. Spreaker has all the tools you need to record, edit, publish, and yeah, monetize your podcast all in one place. And it's free. So tell your story and make money while doing it. Start your podcast for free now at Spreaker.com slash make money. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com slash make money from the iHeart Podcast Network. The inter- initial interviews were so short, too. That's the thing. It was so short. So it was kind of just like, she fell, this happened. It, it wasn't, you know, they just weren't in depth. So far this season, we've been taking a deep dive into the official police file. But ask anyone around Marshall about Janie Ward's death, and you'll hear a lot of stories and rumors that aren't noted anywhere in the official report. It was getting dark. The cops are busting up the party. As soon as that announcement was made, and it wasn't clear whether it was right before or right after during the chaos, but, like, you know, people start running. Everybody's throwing their booze and getting their car out of there, throwing their, you know. Their, your primary concern at that point, if you're a teenager at a party you're not supposed to be, is getting rid of your booze. That's it. And getting your ass out of there. So that's a little more understandable that they might not have noticed her or thought there was anything too wrong. But still... There were people who did know what was going on, and you saw, and you saw she, and all, also seeing that she was that bad off, and they could hear her gasping for air and, like, rattling, and they still threw her in the back of the truck and left her back there by herself. We have interviews in the case file where partygoers recounted the events that occurred the night Janie died, but some people, including Mike and Janie's family, have warned us that we can't necessarily trust the information in the case file. Some of the partygoers were later caught in lies, which to some degree is not surprising. Remember, this was a high school party with booze and weed. But to a lot of people in Marshall, Arkansas, us relying solely on what we've learned from the official case file would be seen as naive. On September 9, 1989, Janie Ward died under mysterious circumstances after collapsing at a high school party at a cabin in the woods near Marshall, Arkansas. 30 years later, her death certificate's cause and manner of death are still listed as undetermined. It's been 30 years, and no one can answer the question, 
what killed Janie Ward? We're diving into the theory that a lot of people in Marshall still believe. That Janie was hit in the face with a blunt force object, causing a catastrophic injury to her spinal cord, and that her death was covered up because it affected powerful families in Marshall. Families with connections to people in the highest offices of Arkansas government. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. Since Janie's death, rumors have been flying in the small town of Marshall, Arkansas, including the one that Janie got into a fight with a girl at the party, Sarah. Sarah was the polar opposite of Janie. Janie was in the high school band, a member of Future Business Leaders of America. She worked as a waitress. Sarah was rich, popular, and a cheerleader. She won beauty pageants. And her father, Jerry, was a prominent judge in town. But a lot of people around town claim that Sarah's sweet facade hides a fiery temper. After Janie's death, a news channel talked to two other teens who claimed that they had been assaulted by Sarah. One had her nose broken. In the week leading up to her death, Janie's parents said that she confided in them that she was having issues with several girls at school. Ron talked with Bill Beach about it in a phone call with him. Ron starts by saying that no one at the party seemed to help Janie. He said no one tried to help her in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard the same thing. None of these kids up here were her friends. Matter of fact, she's been having trouble in school that very week with, uh, with two of them. And uh, one girl in particular she's been having trouble with for quite a while. And she's come home telling us stories about this, been upset. She said, Daddy, if they don't quit bugging me, and if you don't quit calling me names, I'm just going to stop the floor out of her. And I told her, I said, now look, Danny, I said, uh, you don't ever start nothing, but don't take nothing either. Sure. Ron is saying that Janie told him she was having issues with two girls at school. At first, Sarah is not the girl Ron suspects Janie was having problems with. But Sarah, along with Gary Don and Billy, was one of only three people who claimed to have seen Janie fall. And there was something else that made the ward suspicious. Sarah changed her story about what happened at the party that night. She was interviewed twice. The first one was just a, a very short statement, um, like, uh, like the rest of the kids. And they were all about 16 or at the time, most of them. And um, she said that she had been at the party with a couple girlfriends. And then later... There was a Q&A with Bill Beach, and it was, he went very easy on her. I mean, it was very short, um, but basically she admitted that she lied, that she'd been there with um, a couple guys and a girl. It looked like a sort of double date situation. Um, and she said, you know, I, I said I was with those other people because I wasn't supposed to be out with the people I was with. And he was like, oh, well, that's fine. You cleared that all up. You're fine. I mean, he was, he was really, really, really easy on her. In the interview tape, 
Beach fills in Sarah's sentences and says that the interview is just a formality. And at the beginning of the tape, you can hear Sarah and her dad, Jerry, laughing about the rumors going on around the town. Oh, yeah. Do we talk about uh, the daughter of the elected <laughs> prominent public official? Public official? I'll tell you what. Well, all we want to do is just go back over a few points and clarify a few things. That's all we're going to try to do. Okay. Anything you want to do, go ahead. Just so we can clarify something, Sarah, the, the first time you and I talked, you talked about being down there with Katrina and Brandon. And I could. I wasn't supposed to be with the person I was with. Okay. But you. Beach says, you've corrected that now, so we're in good shape. Initially, it seems troubling that Sarah changed her story. But I've also been a teen girl who was afraid of getting busted for sneaking out with a guy that my parents hated. In the second interview, Sarah gave a few more details about a conversation she had with Janie. This time, she said that Janie jokingly called her a snob at the party. And then I remember when we were getting out of the truck, walking towards the house, she said hello. She said, hi, snob. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't see you. Janie may have been kidding, but to Janie's parents, this comment illustrated the difference between the people in power and the ones with none. Comparing Sarah's interviews to the ones of the other people at the party, I noticed she's the only one who says that it was dark when Janie fell. Most people say it happened around dusk. She's also the only person who said that Janie appeared to be very intoxicated. But according to Janie's autopsy report, her blood alcohol level was only 0.05, or the equivalent of about one drink. And you said she was, she was intoxicated. When I saw her, the, her if she, act, she acted intoxicated. That's the way everybody saw her at the party. I don't know if she's acting that way or if she really was. Another rumor going around town was that a girl was heard in the bank parking lot on the night Janie died saying that her daddy would get her out of trouble. This quote is cited in several newspaper articles, but it's never attributed to anyone in particular, and no one can figure out who actually said it first. But people start to assume it was Sarah. A lot of people, it seemed like after everything happened at the party, the party, there was a rumor the party was getting busted, um, everything happened with Janie, there was a, gr a crowd of people in that parking lot, and a lot of people ended up going to the Daisy Queen and hanging out, and then, Sarah said that she she also was in that parking lot and he asked her something about did you see her you know when she's laying there in the back of the truck and she said yes but I didn't touch her and it was just a weird it was just weird it was it was just it just struck me as a lot the way she answered that question we'll be right back Love a good fright? Start streaming and screaming with Shudder. From the legendary monsters that fuel your nightmares to under-the-radar haunts and critically acclaimed exclusives, discover what Polygon calls a horror movie paradise and what RogerEbert.com says is one of the best streaming services in the world. Stacked with chilling content, all curated by the industry's top horror experts, Shudder's library of frightening films and eerie series cover the entire horror spectrum meaning there's something for every type of fan. Come experience highly anticipated new releases like Superhost, Seance starring Suki Waterhouse, and the Boulay Brothers' Dracula. Plus, don't miss out on Creepshow, Slasher, Flesh and Blood, 
and other must-see Shutter exclusives you won't find anywhere else. Available ad-free and on the platforms you're already on. Sign up today at Shutter.com. Shutter, so good it's scary. This episode is sponsored by Maiden Home. High-quality, handcrafted furniture for the modern home. Maiden Home brings you thoughtfully designed custom furniture, handcrafted in North Carolina. This region is home to some of the world's most talented artisans who are experts in woodworking, upholstery, and finishing. By partnering directly with these family-owned workrooms, Maiden Home gives you access to the world's finest craftsmanship without the retail markup. From sofas and sectionals to tables and beds, you'll find beautiful heirloom-quality pieces that will last for years. And with over 60 fabrics and leathers and a variety of wood finishes to choose from, you can create a piece custom to your design style. Enjoy complimentary white glove delivery on all orders, a lifetime warranty, and easy returns within 30 days. To browse the latest collection and order free swatches, visit MadeInHome.com. That's M-A-I-D-E-N-H-O-M-E.com to start building your custom piece today. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Is that Shakespeare? Nope, it's Geico. Uh, Yeah, 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 that's Shakespeare from one of his unpublished works. Oh, it be not for awakening. Nay, give it thou the berries. For 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. No, it's from Geico, because they help save people money. Well, I hate to break it to you, but Geico got it from Shakespeare. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. People also talked about hearing Sarah and her friends laughing about Janie at school. Attempts to find anyone who actually heard this information firsthand proved futile. I experienced this several times in Rebecca's case, and it was extremely frustrating. Recently, I was getting some photos for Janie's case processed in Mountain View when someone pulled me aside and told me they knew for a fact that a group of people had killed Rebecca. I know they did it because they described the whole thing, he said. They told me in detail how they knocked every single tooth out of her mouth. I told him I'd seen Rebecca's autopsy report and that her teeth were intact, but he continued to insist that I was wrong. This was only one of hundreds of rumors like this that I heard throughout the course of the case. Bill Beach tried to track down these rumors about Janie. One person claimed that a woman who worked at Marshall High School told her she heard Sarah talk about pushing Janie out of a moving pickup truck. But when Investigator Beach reached out to the woman, she said she never heard Sarah say anything like that, and whoever told him that must be confused. But if Janie and Sarah did get into a fight, what would they have been fighting about? Janie's parents said that she had a problem at school with the cheerleaders. But many other witnesses say everyone liked Janie. There was another rumor going around that a fight broke out over a guy. According to Bill Beach's interview with Janie's friend Leslie, Janie had been dating a guy named Don shortly before her death. That's the same friend who said Janie borrowed her Def Leppard shirt and that Janie spent the night with her on Friday before the party. Did she have any boyfriends that you know of? She liked this guy. Leslie said Janie told her that she and Don had broken up a few weeks earlier because he thought she was too young for him and because he'd started seeing someone else. Janie had also mentioned to Leslie that she dated other people in the past, but said she wasn't dating anyone in particular at the time of the party. Anybody else at school she talked about dating or going with her? Not that day. 
she talked about a lot of people she dated in the past. In Ron's boxes, we find a note that Janie passed to her friends at school. It reads, Hey girl, I'm so hyper. I can't wait until lunch. I'm going to be loud. Come get me tonight. We'll paint Marshall red. Oh, according to Carla and Tiffany, I'm in love with James, just because I talked to him. Oh, I hate that. They think you can't talk to a guy without having the hots for that guy. It's sickening. Don't you agree? Like we said earlier, Janie didn't run with the popular crowd. And that was made explicitly clear in an interview with a woman named Sherry. She was at the party and described herself as a friend of Janie's. The investigator asks her if it would be possible that Janie and Sarah were fighting over a boy. No, 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 because the guy that Sarah would have dated would not have looked once at Olivia at all. You know, she, Sarah was pretty, she was a cheerleader. Olivia wasn't, you know, big old girl. Other glasses? No. There is no way that um, they would have been fighting on the same boy. I just don't see it. After the funeral, Janie's dad, Ron, couldn't escape the whispers in town. And that's when he had what he claimed was a very strange run-in with Sarah. What would you tell the story about uh, Sarah coming in and buying a baseball bat? Oh, yes. A few days after Janie's death, Ronnie went into Harps. Harps is the grocery store in town. And he went around the corner, and there was Sarah looking at baseball bats. And when she saw Ronnie, it scared her immediately, and she ran toward the door. I mean, he just saw her and stopped short, you know? And she ran toward the door and backed out the door looking at him and ran. And because and, what are the odds? The timing, the, what are the odds? And I don't, I don't, I never believe in coincidences anyway, you know, but because of the nature, you know, he just, he's like, you know, you can't make that stuff up. He's like, I ain't even going to tell anybody, you know, because it just sounds preposterous. At first, this does sound sinister. But as an investigator, I know that there's always a danger of making a theory fit the evidence instead of the other way around. But at the same time, you have to keep an open mind. The smallest detail in an investigation can lead to cracking a case. And that's why several instances throw me off guard. Bill Beach took a group of people to the cabin in the woods to demonstrate how Janie fell. Among them were Jay, who threw the party, Ron Rose, who was driving the truck that took Janie back to town, and Billy and Gary Don, who both said that they saw Janie fall. This is where Gary Don backtracks on his statement. Originally, he said that he saw Janie fall. Now, at the reenactment, he demonstrates what would have happened if he saw her fall. It's very odd. It's also strange that Sarah was not included in these reenactments, even though she's one of the only people who said she saw Janie fall. Also, Police and prosecutors filed an affidavit for a search warrant for the cabin. Initially, it was denied by a judge. He approved it a couple of hours later. The judge who initially denied the search warrant was Sarah's dad, Jerry. It's just another small detail that made Ron and the rest of the Ward family distrustful of Sarah and Jerry. The Wards also thought that Jerry and Sarah were being treated better 
by police and by prosecutors. Jerry was a respected judge in town. And looking at the police file, we find a letter where the prosecutor on Janie's case, H.G. Foster, gives Jerry a heads up on information about Janie's case. It reads, Enclosed, please find additional material which was furnished to me by the Arkansas State Police and appears to have something to do with the Janie Ward case. It appears that this will be included within the state police file and will become freedom of information at that point. I feel certain that Ron Ward will call the newspapers and make everyone aware of these clearly unsubstantiated allegations concerning your daughter. I wanted you to have this material before any of the press got hold of it and give you an opportunity to share your thoughts with me about what I need to do, if anything, with it. It is my inclination at this point that it would be best to go ahead and furnish copies of this material to the press so as to diffuse any allegations that will subsequently be made by Ronnie Ward of a cover-up. On the other hand, I'm not going to do anything with it unless and until I hear from you. But when talking about Ron Ward, H.G. Foster finds him more of a nuisance. Looking at the case file, there are a few examples of when the police and prosecutors grow exasperated by Ron Ward's persistence in the case. In one letter, Foster calls Ron Ward irate when describing him to another prosecutor who he wants to look into the case. It reads, I was wondering if you would still be interested in fooling around with the Janie Ward investigation. Investigation is in quotes. There's continued activity and rumbling up here from the father of Janie Ward, who is of American Indian extraction, six foot six tall, 260 pounds, and very irate. The showdown between Jerry and Ron began to spiral after Ron launches the Justice for Janie website in the early 2000s. The forum quickly became a hotbed for speculation and accusation, and Jerry responded to allegations against him and his daughter. In one comment on the forum, he says he wants to sue the wards and the journalist Mike Masterson for libel and slander. And at one point, he offers up $10,000 to cover court expenses for a grand jury. In an interview with investigators, Jerry is exasperated by all of the wards' allegations. Then they started bitching about a grand jury. We need a grand jury. Nobody has the money for a grand jury. I said, yeah, I'll give you the money for a grand jury. I'll give you, I'll give you $10,000. You match it. We saw that. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't do it. We're not going to do it. But, all right, so let's just follow that logic. If they're not going to sue me when I tell them, you know, let's do it. You know, and I was serious, very serious. Sue me, sue my daughter, and let's get on with that, and we'll see how it all takes out. And then if there's incriminating evidence, which comes out in a civil case, then the prosecutor's going to have that information. Hello? All right. So they didn't want to do that. And then they start talking about it, grand jury, and I say, okay, I'll go that route with you, too, and you match the money. Well, did they do it? No. Why? Why? What's the logical conclusion? The logical conclusion is, is they don't want to. Why? Why don't they want to? Because they want to keep the story going. Why? Because they want to make people feel bad. Hell, my daughter and I felt bad since the damn thing first started. You can't make me feel any worse. So that's not the reason. Jerry suspects that the wards don't have any incriminating evidence to accuse his daughter of anything. In his interview with investigators, Jerry said that Ron was ruining his daughter's life. They are so ridiculous that they have done nothing but enhance my stature and search. 
by this is my daughter. Um, I feel so bad for her. She, she quit coming home because every time she turned around, it seemed that somebody was making, you know, she, whether she's right or not, she felt like people were talking about her. She knew they were talking on the web thing. In the last episode, we talked about how Fahmy Malik botched autopsies, and some people said he deliberately lied to cover up cases. Journalist Mike Masterson and the wards think that Janie's death was covered up, and that the cover-up could have gone all the way to the top of Arkansas's government. Looking at the case file, Mike and the wards both voiced their suspicions about how many pieces of mail were addressed to the governor's office. They asked, why would the governor's office be interested in the death of a 16-year-old girl in a small town? We did find one peculiar envelope addressed to Ron Ward. Inside was a typed letter that offered the wards thousands of dollars to stop investigating. The return address was torn off. As we try to separate fact from fiction in Janie's case, what we know for sure is that Marshall had become a breeding ground of paranoia and the wards were under huge amounts of stress. You, know, Mona, you might say something about living there in that environment in Marshall, Searcy County. You might talk a little bit about why people wouldn't come forward. What, what would keep them from coming forward to tell what they knew to authorities or to whoever? Well, it was the law, the powers that be, and it went all the way to the governor, went all the way to the straight state crime lab, which the governor ran, I mean, they covered all of his bodies, uh, you know, they knew where the bodies were buried, literally, they knew where all the bodies were buried, literally. Well, they threatened not only the witnesses, they even threatened us. They even called our house and told my dad if he didn't quit looking into it, he had two other kids to worry about. Dad had to pull us out of school right after Johnny died. He did. And uh, he took me and Matthew out of school, my little brother, and we were out for quite a while. But over the years, you know, we all suffered from PTSD. But of course, we were all paranoid and worried and freaking out and stuff because you lose one daughter and you have some woman call your house and threaten your other two children if you investigate the death of your daughter. Now, if that doesn't make it suspicious, I mean, there was just death threats, you know, to witnesses, our family, reporters, you know. Made us all a little paranoid, or a lot paranoid. Not so much me, not so much Ronnie, but we we was afraid to let our other two children out of our sight. Were you ever worried about a fire, about your house being burned? Uh, yeah, oh yeah. He didn't like to leave the house uh, unattended. Because of his records and things, you know. He took it with him wherever he went. He did. He took it with him. It was like moving everywhere we went. We also reached out to several journalists who have covered Janie's case. One said he never received any threats. Another stopped responding. And another said they received a voicemail box full of death threats for looking into Janie's death. All of them declined to give an interview with us. The wards grew suspicious because Sarah's dad, Jerry, was the district judge, and they are convinced he called in a favor for his daughter. In his interview with police, Jerry calls the entire theory nonsense. Uh, I know that there are those who think that there is some kind of a conspiracy 
He has enough power in the state to cover up Janie's death. that keeps getting brought up in connection with Janie's death, or any death when Arkansans suspect a cover-up. It's called Arkansas. Arkansas is the conspiracy theory that claims that people in the Arkansas government would kill their political enemies and have the medical examiner rule it a suicide. It's particularly linked to Bill Clinton, who was governor of Arkansas at the time of Janie's death. To better explain it, we talked to an expert in conspiracy theories, writer and researcher Mike Rothschild. He's written on tons of conspiracy theories, including Arkansas and the Clinton body count. And we wanted to talk to him about how these stories get started and how they can become ingrained in a small town. Arkansas is the mistaken belief that the Clintons have a um, four-decade-long trail of dead bodies behind them, that uh, all of these people in their orbit who have died of natural causes or committed suicide or been killed in accidents or who have actually been killed in some sort of crime have all been victims of the Clintons and this sort of like, Oh, he died by shooting himself three times in the head kind of thing has been given this nickname of Arkansas that any, anybody sort of in the Clinton circle is sort of bumped off once they're no longer necessary for them. I'm in no way endorsing this theory, but in Marshall, I can see how a conspiracy theory could take on a life of its own. When there's a lack of communication and distrust between the police and the public, there's always the risk of an investigation turning into an echo chamber. When the facts aren't straight or available, speculation intensifies. So, so much of what is called a conspiracy can be written off as just incompetence. You have a lot of people who just aren't good at their jobs and a lot of people who are lazy. And, and I think... That, that, that need for answers, I think, is, is very prevalent in conspiracy theories. We don't want to believe that things just randomly happen. We don't want to believe that the universe is sort of cold and indifferent. We want to believe that someone has it out for us. I mean, as, as bizarre as that sounds, it, it's much more comforting to think that a loved one was killed because of a plot or because someone was getting back at us or, or whatever 
then it was just just bad timing. And there are a thousand ways it might not have happened, but it, it did happen this one way. And so we need answers. We need explanations. And we need things to make sense. Mike also explains that it's human nature to need someone to blame. And in Janie's case, where the family isn't getting answers, it's no wonder there needs to be a villain. There's always someone that you want to blame. And it's really easy to blame powerful, wealthy people rather than looking inward. And most conspiracy theories do have a grain of truth to them. You know, they're not just completely made up. There is one small thing about them that's true. And then if, well, if that can be true, what about these other 12 things? It sort of grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's, it, it just becomes harder and harder to contain. And yeah, people who are wealthy and powerful have it easier than people who are not. I mean, that's just, that is just the way it is. As Mike said, sometimes there is a grain of truth in conspiracy theories. It might be as simple as someone doing a favor for someone else. When people with money and power are treated differently from everyone else, even a situation that didn't start out as a conspiracy can become one. And like I said, paranoid people aren't always wrong. We'll be right back. Geico knows there are many reasons why you ride. From the exciting adventure of the daily commute to the peace of mind that Geico always has your back with 24-7 access to claim service and legendary customer service. But Pamela Mund had one reason in particular. My skin is extremely averse to most fabrics, except for the soft, buttery feeling of leather. Thankfully, I found my clan of leather lovers in the biking community. It's been life-changing. Geico Motorcycle. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired a soap opera star. Gracious me, my car has storm damage and I've had to file a claim. Could it possibly get worse? Will my claims team leave me for someone else? Someone less intense? Um, no. Actually, when you file a claim with GEICO, you get your own dedicated claims team who promises to stay with you throughout the process. Oh, I've never known such loyalty. I can't wait for the second season. Geico. Great service without all the drama. Good afternoon. Would you like to try a free sample of our double fudge brownie? Oh, sure. Mmm, that's very good. I'll just take one more, just to be sure. Yep, still very good. Some things never change, like never being able to take just one free sample. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Mmm, is that macadamia nut I taste? Let me take one more. Sir, mmm. I thought so. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. The conflict between Jerry and Sarah and the wards split the town in two. Some people think that Sarah killed Janie with a baseball bat. Other people think this is totally unfounded and ridiculous. But Ron and Mona Ward kept her story alive and took her case statewide with the help of reporter Mike Masterson. Mike uses his platform as a writer to tell Janie's story every week in his column. This brings more attention to the case and puts more pressure on Arkansas officials to do something about it, especially when the wards find a forensic pathologist to exhume Janie's body and do another autopsy. They find the pathologist through the nonprofit organization 
parents of murdered children. It has a service called Second Opinions, where volunteer prosecutors, pathologists, and law enforcement review cases that families feel are not completely figured out. This is Bev Warnock, the executive director of Parents of Murdered Children. And what they would do is they would call us. We would ask them to get as much information as they can, the autopsy, the police report, anything else that, you know, they can get their hands on. Send it to us, and then we forward it to our volunteers, and they'll look at the case. They'll read it, um, and, you know, and they'll come back with an opinion. And that's really all we can offer the family. Um, you know, it's not like we can go there and have them open the case or anything. It's just an opinion that might answer some of the questions that they have. An opinion might be, you know, it definitely wasn't a um, accident, it definitely wasn't an overdose, um, or it was, and the family has to try to accept that it really was. It's just devastating for them to not really know and feel that they're, you know, they feel in their gut that it wasn't what, you know, they said and what the police are believing. Among all the whispers, conspiracy, and crazy rumors, we have to go back to basics, to the one piece of evidence that the parents have, Janie herself. In 2002, the wards took advantage of the Second Opinion Service. In their letter, they laid out everything they found suspicious. The sand under the clothes, the fact that her clothes were wet, the bruising and injuries Ron saw, the x-rays, and the rumors about Sarah. And it didn't take long before they received a letter from Dr. Harry Bennell. Dr. Bennell was a forensic pathologist. He's performed thousands of autopsies and been involved in many high-profile cases, including the Green River Killer investigation and the Challenger space shuttle crash. In his letter to the wards, he agreed that the circumstances surrounding Janie's death were suspicious. He wrote that he found no objective evidence to prove she died from the fall described by witnesses. He offered to conduct a second autopsy, pro bono. The wards and their lawyer were able to convince a judge to order an exhumation of Janie's body. After so many years of fighting, the wards were feeling hopeful that they might get answers. Even though the last thing they wanted to do was pull their daughter out of the ground, they believed that to get justice, they needed another autopsy. Ron and Mona stood beside the cement vault as workers pulled Janie's casket out of the ground. Her body was delivered to the University of Arkansas Medical Facility in Little Rock. And on October 8, 2004, 15 years after her death, Dr. Bennell performed a second autopsy, and he came to a completely different conclusion. Mike Masterson met with Dr. Bennell and was suspicious of the fact that the Arkansas State Crime Lab did not allow Bennell to use their facilities. Dr. Harry Bunnell was a pathologist at the beckoning call of parents of murdered children because he was on their board. So he was involved in cases around the country that needed answers. So Dr. Bunnell showed up expecting to be greeted as civil, as a doctor, as a forensic pathologist. But that's not how Arkansas received him. They told him he could not use the crime lab to do a second autopsy, that he'd have to do it on his own somewhere, so he found a private place. And this is, you know, Dr. Bunnell was a very respected, competent forensic pathologist. He was very credible to me. He had no dog in this hunt. Dr. Bunnell just came in to do an honest job. He didn't know what he was going to find. That's what he found. That's what he announced. Well, 
you know, then it really hit the fan in Arkansas because now you have a guy coming in who's qualified, giving a manner of death, which had never happened. And so all of a sudden the system went into full, <laughs> they circled all the wagons pretty quickly. They realized they were gonna have to do something because it was laying out there, this homicide. Ron finally heard what he had thought to be true all along. Someone killed Janie. Remember that in the first autopsy report, Dr. Malik notes that he didn't see any bruising on Janie's body, except for a small bruise on her lower back. He also said she sustained a hyperextension neck injury from falling on the back of her head. He didn't note that anything was broken. Dr. Banal also says that Janie has a hyperextension injury, but he says it's because something hit her in the face. Dr. Banal writes, her head was knocked too far backwards, and there's a fracture of the spine in the neck. Dr. Bunnell also notes extensive damage to Janie's face and neck. He notes an abrasion and contusion on the left cheek and left forehead, a fracture with hemorrhaging of nasal cartilage, and maroon discoloration across the face. He also agrees with the two pathologists who reviewed Dr. Malik's autopsy. He thinks the lateral X-ray of Janie could be a male. On the front page of his report, Dr. Bunnell says the cause of death is blunt impact to the face. The manner is homicide. ABC did an episode of their show Primetime about Janie's case. They interviewed Sarah. During the interview, Sarah was shown playing with her baby and sitting with her father on a porch swing. She completely denied any involvement in Janie's death. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. Helen Gone is a joint production between School of Humans and iHeartRadio. It is written and recorded by me, Katherine Townsend. Taylor Church and Gabby Watts are our producers and story editors. Executive producers are Brandon Barr, Brian Lavin, and Elsie Crowley for School of Humans, and Connell Byrne and Chuck Bryant for iHeart. Our field producer is Miranda Hawkins. Theme and original score are by Ben Salee. Available wherever you get your music. Please visit us at HelenGonePodcast.com or follow us on social media. Support for this podcast is from Williams. We make clean energy happen. Williams is the first North American midstream company to establish a climate commitment and an immediate approach to a sustainable future. We've released our 2020 sustainability report to track progress on our ESG goals, which includes a near-term emissions reduction target of 56% by 2030. We're leveraging our natural gas-focused strategy to fight climate change today and build a clean energy economy tomorrow. Our infrastructure and commitment are transforming the future of energy. Learn more at williams.com. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. 
The Real Time Crime Podcast is for true fans of true crime. Join Leah Lamar and Teddy Mellencamp for an iHeartRadio original podcast dedicated to armchair detectives. Embark on a quest to unravel unsolved mysteries and delve into current criminal trials in real time. Why do I obsess over true crime? It's because I need to know every detail because they say that the devil's in the details. Listen to Real Time Crime on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.